what's the biggest eruption in Earth's history or what's the biggest volcanic event. And that's what I'm going to talk about today. The interest, of course, is that there's really only two natural hazards which can create a global catastrophe. One is, of course, a, a large meteor hitting the Earth, as it did in the Cretaceous, to uh, lead to the demise of the dinosaurs. But also a very, very large eruption, much bigger than, if you like, modern societies experienced, uh, also has the potential for creating a global disaster. Well, firstly, let's have a look at some of the uh, what goes on, on the, in the Earth with regard to volcanism. There's 551 historically active volcanoes. And in fact, uh, before 2010, there were 550 because uh, Mount Sinabung in Indonesia erupted in 2010, and it hadn't had an historic eruption before. So... Uh, in fact, you'll see that in the next line, there's uh, over 1,500 uh, active volcanoes, quaternary volcanoes, uh, which uh, still seem to have a potential for eruption. So because we've only got 550 uh, historically active volcanoes, it's really quite common that volcanoes that have had no activity in recorded history will start up. Uh, and there's roughly about one every two years somewhere on Earth, a, new, a volcano erupts which has never, we didn't know it uh, ha had any record of before. On the whole, there's about 50 eruptions every year around the, the Earth. It varies a bit. Um, sometimes it's 30, sometimes it's 60, but it, on average it's about 50. And as I mentioned, one volcano erupts every two years which has had no historic eruption. The economic costs can be very high locally, and sometimes more regionally, um, when the eruption in Iceland took place and a lot of ash stopped aviation flying uh, across Europe, in fact, around the world, but I guess some of you might have been caught out by that, and aviation, pass uh, commercial aviation was shut down, and that cost uh, several, uh, several million dollars, uh, sort of hundreds of millions of dollars, I should say, uh, to the aviation industry, as well as a lot of inconvenience to passengers. And important uh, point about uh, eruptions, very large eruptions can affect global climate. That's a theme I'll return to. But uh, very large eruptions can create uh, uh, not just local but regional and global effects because of the pollution they create. And uh, vulnerability to volcanic eruptions, in fact to all natural hazards, is increasing um, partly as a result of uh, po uh, population growth, but also because of globalisation and increase in infrastructure. So the volcanic risk, although the rate at which volcanoes erupt around the Earth doesn't appear to change very much with, with time, uh, the vulnerability or the risk does. Well, let's just start off with some facts and figures. How do we measure the size of a volcanic eruption? Uh, there's two measures. One is the amount that's erupted. Uh, in often e either as a volume or a mass, and that's called the magnitude. It's a bit like the scale for earthquakes. It's a, uh, the magnitude scale for volcanoes, and we can measure the um, we can measure the magnitude either by volume, and you'll see for the eruptions we're talking about, we're thinking about uh, uh, many cubic kilometres. So keep in mind what a, a cubic a, a kilometre. Uh, one kilometre by one kilometre by one kilometre, how much material is in that. That's a huge amount of material, and we'll see that some of the, 
the greatest volcanic eruptions have erupted hundreds, even a few thousand cubic kilometers, all in one eruption. Uh, some type, the actual magnitude scale is based on converting that volume into a mass in kilograms. And the, I'm not going to show very many formulas, but this is a bit like the earthquake scale, that the magnitude is essentially the logarithm of the mass erupted, how many kilograms have erupted, uh, plus, uh, plus seven. And the rate of eruption uh, it is another measure of how big an eruption is. Intensity, and that's volume per second or mass per second. And I'll just give you an example of, of uh, what we're talking about. A, a fairly important eruption in the 1980 was the amount, eruption of Mount St. Helens in the United States. And during that eruption, it was quite a big explosive eruption. It was tiny compared to what we're going to discuss later in this lecture. But that erupted 10,000 cubic metres of magma every second. Now, I just did a rough calculation before I started this lecture that this uh, lecture theatre seems to be about 15 metres wide, maybe 20 metres deep, and uh, several metres high. So it's maybe two or 3,000 cubic metres uh, of volume in this lecture theatre. And Mount St Helens was erupting something like three or four times greater than that volume every second, and it did so for several hours. So that's a, a measure of intensity. It's the rate at which things happen, either volume per second or a mass per second. And a super eruption, is, uh, which is a, a, a term coined by the media, by the BBC, they had a programme a few years ago, is a magnitude eight eruption or greater. And I'll come to explain that in a little bit more detail next. So what we're going to be talking about this evening is the very biggest volcanic eruptions on Earth. And I'm going to start with a... Uh, the biggest eruption, but, well, one of the two biggest eruptions of the 20th century. On the bottom left, you'll see a picture of, uh, Mount, of Mount Pinatubo. And this is the crater formed by the 1991 eruption of Mount Pinatubo. And that crater is something like just over three kilometres wide. And it's uh, one of the two biggest eruptions of the 20th century. And it erupted five cubic kilometres of magma, and that's roughly 25 times greater than Mount St. Helens erupted in 1980, so that gives you a bit of a scale. It is also similar to Vesuvius in AD 79 when Pompeii was buried under volcanic deposits. That was another, I guess, a famous eruption. So Pinatubo is somewhat similar in size, about five cubic kilometres, and it had a magnitude six and a half. So that's pretty big. If we go to one of the biggest eruptions of the last thousand years on Earth, uh, we come to a volcano called Tambora in Indonesia, which erupted in 1815. I'm going to talk about this eruption, uh, famous eruption later and the effects it had. But this created a crater. This is a, a crater about six kilometres in diameter. And the reason, of course, you get these huge craters is that so much material is erupted out of the Earth there's basically not exactly a hole, but there's, uh, it's, it, it's actually erupted out, and then the Earth basically collapses into the space which this magma originally occupied within the crust. And that's why we get these large holes. So the, the, the size of the crater is uh, a sort of measure of the size. And in Tambor in 1815, as I say, one of about two very, very large eruptions in the last thousand years, 
um, had a mag uh, erupted a volume of 45 cubic kilometers. That's that's getting pretty big, uh, and uh, that was a magnitude seven eruption. And then we're going to leap right up to one of the, the uh, in fact, the biggest eruption uh, of the last 100,000 years on Earth, which is Mount Toba. It's in Sumatra, and it erupted 74,000 years ago. It's the largest eruption on Earth in the last 100,000 years. And this is uh, just about the biggest not quite the biggest, but very close to being the biggest known volcanic eruption uh, in Earth's history. And that created a hole, a cr an enormous crater, and this crater is about 100 kilometres in this direction and about 30 kilometres in that direction. Because 3,500 cubic kilometres of material erupted all in one go, and the where that magma came from underground... Uh, collapsed in on itself and formed this gigantic crater. You can see Tambora, the, one of the biggest eruptions of the last 1,000 years, on the same scale, so that's this crater here, and you can see just how huge it, uh, uh, the Toba caldera, it's, these craters are often called calderas, how big it is. It's the biggest volcanic uh, crater on Earth. And again, just for comparison, we're talking about hundreds of times bigger than the biggest eruption of the last 100 years. So that's um, giving you a sense of how big volcanic eruptions can get. Just a little bit about uh, the, uh, what happens in these eruptions. Um, just uh, to say that the reason that volcanoes are so explosive is that underground, a few kilometres or so underground, where you've got molten rock, it can dissolve volcanic gases like carbon dioxide and water uh, to quite large amounts. So it's the same as basically what happens when you make fizzy water or champagne. You're dissolving carbon dioxide in a liquid under pressure. And when you relieve the pressure, uh, of course, uh, the, the bubbles come out. And if they come out, uh, if there's a lot of the, the uh, gases dissolved in the liquid, then we get an explosive flow. So in a volcano... Uh, typically, we've got about 5% water. Water's the main uh, propellant or ingredient. And it's dissolved a few kilometres under the earth. Molten rock dissolves of something like 5% water. If that magma comes to the earth's surface, as it did in Mount St Helens, this is 1980, it expands dramatically. The water comes out, forms bubbles, and the bubbles of the gas expands by about a thousand-fold very, very rapidly. And the result of that is a very high-speed flow, typically going at one or two or 300 metres per second, that jets and fragments the magma into fine volcanic ash. And that's what you see here in Mount St Helens. And this material is going up uh, high in the sky, uh, and uh, that's what also happens in the super eruptions too. Now, there's two things that, again, perhaps just to, it's a way of a comparison, that's Mount St. Helens, 1980, and as I mentioned already, 10,000 cubic metres per second is what you're seeing here of the rate of eruption. And so it erupted about 0.2 cubic kilometres over several hours. So it's pretty impressive, but if, as you saw from the previous slide, it's a, a, a tiny little eruption compared to the biggest eruptions on Earth. Now, there's two things that can happen. Uh, when this stuff 
explodes into the atmosphere. One is it lacks a bit like a, a bonfire or a, a factory chimney. Hot volcanic ash at hundreds and hundreds of degrees centigrade mixes up with cold air and heats the air and makes it expand. It's how a bonfire, the, the plume above a bonfire works or above a factory chimney. You've got hot material which heats up the air and makes it go high. And in a volcanic eruption, there's so much material that it can go up to 20, 30, 40 uh, kilometres height. In the case of Mount St Helens, it went up to nearly 20 kilometres high. And it go and then spreads volcanic ash and dust and gases into the upper parts of the atmosphere. The other thing that can happen is that it uh, that, that there can be so much ash that it jets out of the volcano, but it doesn't really mix with enough air, and it collapses and flows down the side of the... Uh, instead flows down the side of the volcano as something we call a pyroclastic flow. And this is the th really definitely the thing you want to avoid if you're around a volcano, because uh, they are deadly. They contribute about uh, almost 40% uh, of, of fatalities around uh, volcanic eruptions. So what I'd like to do is I want to show you a short film. Uh, and I want to just take a little bit of a, a deviation away from the, the main theme by showing you a film of a number of films. You can download these from the internet for free that we've produced by, at Bristol by uh, funding from the World Bank. And what these films are, are designed to do is to tell the public who live around volcanoes, what a pyroclastic flow, one of these flows, is like and why they shouldn't be anywhere near one when they happen. It's only about a two-and-a-half-minute long film. It's, it's on YouTube and on Vimeo. You can download all the films for free. There's about 64 of the films, actually, and I'm just showing you one. But to tell you what a pyroclastic flow is like... Um, and you may recognise the voice, it's Dr Ian Stewart from Plymouth University who often uh, is the compare on a number of BBC uh, science programmes. Pyroclastic flows are one of the most deadly of volcanic hazards. They are rapidly moving avalanches of hot rock, dust and gas that flow down the sides of a volcano and into surrounding valleys. They can climb up and over ridges and high ground. They are dangerous because they flow much faster than a person can run, and often faster than a car. So for those in their path, there's little chance of escape. What makes them especially lethal and devastating is that they're extremely hot. During the day they appear grey and ashy, but at night they can be seen glowing red hot. They destroy and burn anything in their way. Death or severe injury is certain for those caught by a pyroclastic flow. There are two main ways pyroclastic flows may form. Sometimes a volcano explodes and forms a fountain of hot pulverised rock and gas that first rapidly rises into the sky and then falls back, forming pyroclastic flows which race down the sides of the volcano. Other times, instead of an explosion, Sticky lava oozes out of a volcano and piles up around the summit. Pyroclastic flows can then form by parts of the lava collapsing. Although pyroclastic flows normally move down valleys, extremely hot, fast-moving, billowing clouds form above them, 
which can spill out of valleys. This means that even people on high ground are not safe. Pyroclastic flows normally travel to distances of 5 to 10 kilometres from the volcano's summit, but in the biggest eruptions they reach much more than 20 kilometres. Volcanoes that haven't erupted for many decades or even centuries may appear peaceful, but when they awaken, the eruptions are often very large and explosive. Scientists can detect that a volcano is reawakening and are able to provide some warning or advice to evacuate, which is the only protection from pyroclastic flows. That, I hope, gives you some sort of idea about the phenomena that happen during volcanic explosions. And I think from the film you can see you saw glimpses of material going up very high into the atmosphere and some material collapsing down over the volcano after what during the explosion and flowing uh, down the sides of the volcano. And that's what the pyroclastic flow is like. Now, um, by comparison, the pyroclastic flows that we've had in historical uh, eruptions, like uh, uh, I'll give you an example, AD 79, which buried Pompeii. Pompeii is buried under pyroclastic flow deposits, and there are body casts that have been found there uh, underneath the pyroclastic flow. And those flows probably went about uh, maybe 10, 15 kilometers away from Vesuvius. So it's quite a big eruption. But what happens in one of these much bigger eruptions? And I'm going to give you the story of Taupo in New Zealand, 180 AD, and it's about the most violent eruption known. It's not the biggest in terms of magnitude, but in terms of the intensity, it's extraordinary. If those of you who've been to New Zealand so, will know uh, Lake Taupo, the beautiful Lake Taupo on the North Island, and this is the map of the pyroclastic flow which formed in the 180 AD eruption uh, from Lake Taupo. So Lake Taupo is such a violent volcano that it never forms a great big peak like Fuji or Vesuvius. It just forms a, a depression, a crater, and that's what Lake Taupo is another example of, these, of this. And uh, it's an extraordinary event. Uh, you can see that it went from the scale, that's 50 kilometres, you can see it went almost 80 kilometres in all directions. And you can see on this map... This, these are mountains in the North Island of New Zealand. Taupo Lake, Taupo itself is a depression. And some of these mountains go up to about 1,500 metres high. This pyroclastic flow was moving so fast, it flowed over these mountains and went on the other side. And a colleague of mine from uh, Wellington University, uh, Colin Wilson, he estimates that this volcano erupted 15 cubic kilometres in 15 minutes. And that is something like 20 million cubic metres per second. So just an extraordinarily violent event. So if you imagine the film, that collapsing explosion, just imagine it on a gigantic scale. That's what happened in Taupo in 180 AD. If you superimpose that map on the centre of London, if we, uh, if we were unlike, fortunately Britain doesn't have any active volcanoes, but if Taupo was in the middle of London, this is how far the flow would have spread, and it would have covered this area in uh, something like uh, 20 metres of volcanic, hot volcanic ash. And from the ability of the 
flow, if you've got a flow which is going along and it meets an obstacle like a mountain or a building, if it's going slowly, it will flow round the building or round the mountain. But if it's going very fast, it'll flow over the mountain. And uh, that's what Colin did. He mapped these out and he found bits of the deposits on top of the mountains to show they definitely got there. And you can work out on a very simple energy balance that the flow speed must have been about 800 kilometres per hour. So an absolutely extraordinary event. So that's the most violent. Now, of course, it would be terrible news for any, uh, any local area if there's a big volcanic eruption. Clearly, there's local devastation from pyroclastic flows. But the issue that's of greater concern, if you like, for us is the global pollution that eruptions of this kind can uh, create. And I'm going to give you the example of Mount Pinatubo, Philippines, and you might remember five cubic kilomet that it erupted five cubic kilometres, and I told you that it was the, one of the two biggest eruptions of the 20th century. There's Mount Pinatubo, and that red line here is the Philippines. That's Luzon. Um, and there's Mount uh, Pinatubo is down there, and that grey object, this is a space photograph, is the cloud that formed from the eruption of Mount Pinatubo in 1991 on the 15th of June. And at this stage, it's something like uh, 600 kilometres diameter. So what's happened is it's put so much material into the atmosphere that it spreads almost like a gigantic hurricane and spreads out and forms a huge... 600-kilometre uh, diameter cloud. A little bit later, this is an infrared picture of this same cloud. Now it's got to about 800 kilometres diameter, and the colours adjust the temperature at the, hot, at the top of the cloud. It's a, an infrared image. But the, the main thing to get out of this image really is just how huge these clouds are. Now, within three weeks... This is an image from a satellite uh, uh, of which detects sulfur dioxide. So it's very, normally there's very little sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere unless we have a factory that's put, or coal burning or something like that, we get acid rain. But in volcanoes, we also get colossal amounts of sulfur dioxide. And the importance about this sulfur dioxide is that it reacts with water in the atmosphere and forms tiny little droplets of sulfuric acid that we call an aerosol. And this image shows you a satellite picture of the Earth and where it's all red around the equator, uh, that's detecting enormous amounts of sulfur dioxide that ringed the Earth within three weeks of this eruption. So it had... Uh, so it had a it spread around the equator, and then over the next several months, this pollution, this sulfur dioxide here, reacted with water and formed sulfuric acid droplets in the stratosphere, and it spread all around the Earth. I should have mentioned, by the way, that this cloud got to 35 kilometers, so well into the Earth's stratosphere. So this is a stratospheric pollution event. So that's pretty impressive. Uh, let's now look at another example. Uh, I'll come back to Pinatubo later. It's one where we've actually got a lot of measurements. We go back to 1850, eruption of Tambora in Indonesia. 
we mentioned that that's 45 cubic kilometres, and uh, there are about 60,000 deaths directly uh, from the pyroclastic flows and from famine, and there's some archaeological sites very much like Pompeii uh, around the volcano that have been excavated by Indonesian archaeologists, and they've found, just like Pompeii, they found uh, uh, buried villages. And the importance of this event, 45 cubic kilometres, so it's much bigger than Pinatubo, so it had a much, much bigger global pollution event. And 1861, 1816, I should say, was the year with, called the year without a summer. And let's just talk a little bit about the effects of this aerosol. So here we've got the volcano. We pump into the atmosphere enormous amounts of ash, and the one that I'm going to concentrate on is sulfur, is sulfur dioxide, and this reacts with water to form sulfuric acid. And these tiny little droplets do two things. One is that they scatter sunlight away from the Earth. So when we have one of these eruptions, the Earth gets basically covered in a mist of sulfuric acid, and that bounces solar radiation away from the Earth, and generally, everything cools down. So the big effects for the few years after one of these big eruptions is global cooling. It's often called a volcanic winter. The other effect, which is a bit more subtle, but if we look at this diagram, we can see this, that this mist of pollution in the stratosphere bounces some heat away, but it also absorbs heat. It stops the rays getting to the Earth's surface. So the near surface of the Earth, the atmosphere, cools a lot. But actually, this region warms a bit. And this warming affects the circulation of the global atmosphere. And I'll show you some of the effects of that a little bit later. Well, let's go back to 1816, the Great Famine. Um, it's quite famous, for, as I say, for being the year without the summer. And some of you may know that Mary Shelley went to Geneva in this dark, dismal summer of 1816 and was, I'm not sure whether inspired was the right, the right word, but wrote Franken the famous book Frankenstein, a sort of a, a very sinister, gothic thriller, I guess. And um, also, uh, another in terms of sort of arts, Turner... Some of the, the uh, Turner painted some of his wonderful landscape, uh, sort of sunsets in this period because, uh, as you'll see later, the pollution of the sulfuric acid produces magnificent sunsets for a, a year or two after an eruption, and that inspired uh, Turner in some of his paintings. We can look at some of the quotes here in Lancashire Plain, UK, the coldest July in 192 years record. This is Geneva, Switzerland, where Mary, she I guess, uh, Switzerland, where Mary Shelley was. The coldest summer in, uh, uh, in the period 1753 to 1960. In Maine, the USA, in July, ice froze as thick as window glass. And in Ireland, for the harvest entirely fell from the badness of the weather. So those are a number of quotes around the world showing that this eruption had, eruption in Indonesia had truly global effects. One of the uh, really uh, interesting stories um, about this is that um, if you know New England and the typical New England landscape in Connecticut or Massachusetts, uh, you probably didn't uh, appreciate that that landscape was 
to some extent, produced by this eruption. Because what happened was in 1816, the farmers in New England started to plant their crops. And then in uh, May, there was a snowstorms and frosts in New England. And the crops, of course, failed. So then replanted the crops. And then in July, there was more snowstorms and frosts and into August. So there were a series of frosts and snowstorms, highly unusual in the, in the middle of the summer in New England. And, the crop, and basically, the, the farmers, many of the farmers escaped, uh, essentially migrated to the east. They abandoned their farms. And if you go in the New England forest, you'll see sort of old st- walls and things from the abandonment of the farm. So it never really recovered. They found much better farmland uh, in the east. So it led to a migration of farming communities in New England. You can see the effect of, this is in the US, of, the, of that crop failure. And this is the price of wheat in dollars in, eight, uh, in 1816, reaching about three times, uh, almost uh, uh, two or three times, uh, the, if you like, the sort of average. So it led to big food price hikes in Europe and in North America. This is, of course, not a measurement, but this is the temperature change, global temperature change, in 1816, or the early 19th century, um, these are from computer models, so they're not, measurement, they're not measurements, but they're estimates, and they're consistent with this kind of obs- qualitative observations. And you'll see that the computers estimated something like between 1 and 2 degrees global cooling. And that's quite a lot, because you only need 4 degrees cooling global cooling sustained and we'll have an ice age we'll have another ice age so one or two degrees cooling around the planet is actually quite a big deal okay well i'll explain this map in a moment but just go back to pinatubo 1991 it produced this global pollution effect and as i mentioned what happens is this sulfuric acid uh, pollution gets into the stratosphere it gets heated and then it moves towards the poles and the sulfuric acid actually rains down in Antarctica and and Greenland and the North Pole because of a change of circulation. So it's not just that there's cooling, there's a change, really a very dramatic change to the way the the Earth's climate works and the weather that takes place after it. And you can see here, uh, these are maps of uh, the summer... Um, after uh, the Pinatubo eruption in June 1991, so it's uh, in 1992. And you can see here is the observations of temperature changes. So this is basically, if it's blue, it means it's colder than average on the map. If it's on orangey colours, it means it's warmer than usual. So you can see from this map, this is what we actually observed a year after Mount Pinatubo, and you can see that lots of places get definitely get colder, quite a lot colder. Some, and you'll see that the east coast of the United States gets three or four degrees colder, up in, or up into this part of uh, of uh, Canada. Uh, and you can see this effect, which must have affected people in New England in 1816. You can also see that there are some places which actually get a bit warmer. So it's uh, a bit of a mixed picture. 
Now, these, uh, as I say, these are the, uh, I should say, the observations on the top. So we get warm zones and cold zones. And these are the results of a model. Now, the reason this is scientifically important is you probably know that the predictions of global warming, are a lot, there's a lot of emphasis put on global, what's called global climate models. You run the models to find out what the climate's going to do over the next few decades with more and more carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere. And so a volcanic eruption is a wonderful experiment on how these models perform. So what they did after Panatuba, the climate scientists, ran their model of the Earth's climate and they put in the pollution from Pinatubo to see what the model would predict. And this is the model and that's the observations. And although there's not, it's not exact, you can see that overall the patterns that the global climate models that we put a lot of stock on in terms of predicting what's going to happen with global warming really worked rather well. And that's scientifically why big volcanic eruptions are of huge interest, not just to me as a volcanologist, but to climate scientists. So you can see these uh, uh, effects. Now, there's something else that happened, and it's a bit of a subtle one. I'm again, a graph. This is something that's a very famous graph of the carbon dioxide content of the atmosphere against time. Um, from measurements at, in Hawaii. So this tells us how much carbon dioxide... You can see back in 1960, we had about 320 what's called parts per million, or that's the concentration. And we're about now, we're approaching 400, so we've increased the amount of carbon dioxide in the Earth's atmosphere dramatically. And you can see it going up, and the, this bumping around of seasonal effects but you can see it inexorably increasing. And, of course, that's why so many scientists are worried about global warming of these greenhouse gases going up inexorably. But something very interesting happened at about the time of Pinatubo, 1991. And if you look at this quite carefully, uh, which a number of, you can find that actually the rate at which the, all our fossil fuel burning, the CO2, was going up in the in the Earth's atmosphere, actually was about half normal uh, in the two or three years after Pinatubo. And uh, it's reckoned that this may have been... There's a number of theories for this, but the, one of the best bets is that the volcanic ash from Pinatubo fell in the ocean. It's got lots of nutrients, and a lot of the bugs in the ocean like those nutrients. They grow shells, calcium carbonate shells, in the ocean, and they suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So it's a possible explanation of something that happened after Mount Pinatubo. So again, it's another effect. Another one I won't illustrate, but there was a, that eruption also caused a significant ozone hole over northern Europe in the following year. Again, to do with the, chemist, the chemical uh, pollution effects. Okay, well, what is going to happen to us if there's a super eruption? And some colleagues in the Met Office have done the same kind of calculations. They've run their models of what would happen if Mount Toba, an eruption of the scale of Mount Toba, happened again. And it's not very encouraging, I think is the best way of putting it. Um, 
This is the predicted temperature changes during the northern hemisphere summer. And if you look at these colours, the darker the blue, the colder it gets. And if you look at this scale, this area in the middle of the, con of the, uh, of the continents would get down to minus 24 lower than normal. So that would not be very good news for food production around the world. Um, there's another interesting feature that I just want to draw your attention to is where would it be a good place to be if there was a super eruption? And you'll see that Britain's not too bad. And the reason for that is the, this signal is much stronger in the interior of continents than it is next to the ocean or in the ocean, because the ocean provides an ameliorating effect. It, war it uh, stops it getting quite so cold, because the ocean's got a lot of heat and keeps things not quite so cold. So we see that Britain's actually not a bad place to be. If we look in the uh, winter, we get, again, one of these surprising results that actually the North Pole gets a lot warmer than normal, and that's because of this the effects of this um, per, uh, pollution um, the, uh, on the atmospheric circulation. It's um, one of the things, of course, in the 1970s and 80s, people were very worried about the same effect with a big nuclear war. It would be the same effect, but for rather different reasons. It would be, again, a huge amount of pollution associated with, could produce what's, what was called a nuclear winter, and a lot of scientists worked on that, particularly in the sort of Cold War period. Okay, uh, let's now talk a little bit about how often these happen. Now, to get how often these big events happen, uh, what you need to do is you create a, a database, you look at all the volcanoes that erupted in this way, and what we did at Bristol is we created uh, a, a if you like, a record, an inventory of all the volcanoes we know about and all the sizes of the eruption. And we've got a, a, a database of about 1,900 records of very large eruptions from about 480 volcanoes. Now, this is a bit of a scattergram, but bear with me. This is today, and this is 10,000 years ago. So this lower bit of the graph is 10,000 years of the last 10,000 years of Earth history. And this upper axis is the eruption magnitude. So remember six, Pinatubo was six and a half, Tambora was seven, and Toba's way off the scale. Now, if you look at this record, you'll see that the number of dots as you go back in time get less. And that's because the geological record gets poorer as we go back in time. We don't preserve such good records. And we have to correct for that. You'll notice that the bigger dots, the bigger eruptions, don't show such a big effect as the smaller eruptions because the bigger eruptions leave behind big craters that I've shown you and big thick ash uh, deposits of volcanic ash so that we have a better record of the bigger ones than the smaller ones. So what we do is I work with a statistician in Bristol, a chap called John T. Rougier, and we essentially interrogate that data and produce something which is basically, you've heard of the Richter scale for earthquakes. The bigger the earthquake, the less frequently it ha happens. And we do the same for these volcanoes. And so this is magnitude against what we call the return period or the, 
the time. Um, that, uh, and when we do this analysis, uh, an eruption like Tambora in 1815 happens, we, th- we think that roughly every 500 years. And then if we want to look at how many times a super eruption will happen, then it's every, we get a number of about every 17,000 years. It's, it, it's, not, it's certainly not uh, very accurate. Um, it, it could be quite a bit less or quite a bit more, but it's something of the order of uh, 20,000 years, let's say. So we don't have to worry too much about super eruptions at the moment. Our chances of you being personally involved in a super eruption while, uh, while you're on Earth is probably, uh, well, pretty low. It, and remember, 20,000 years is sort of much more than recorded history. Uh, so uh, they're rare events on a human time scale. Okay, so how can we get a better record? And this is the last bit of um, last graph I'll show you is I mentioned that when you get this pollution, the aerosol, it, it, the circulation in the earth takes the pollution and it dumps it on the poles. And it dumps it in Antarctica, which is very convenient because it then produces a beautiful record of volcanic activity on earth. Uh, and if, what you do is you go to Antarctica and you take a drill core and you get the ice out And inside the ice is these little droplets of sulfuric acid from each eruption drop down, and you can measure these. They create a much higher electrical conductivity of the ice. And so you can measure them. And this is the last, from an ice record in Antarctica, this is the last uh, 200,000 years of Earth history. And every red spike is a very big eruption. Tambora is somewhere about there. So an eruption about Tambora is just about enough to get in this record. And you can see, going back 200,000 years, there are some very big spikes. And that fits in quite well with our our rough estimate that we're getting one of these... We think one of these very big spikes is one of these super eruptions... Uh, and we're trying to identify which ones. And we can see that this idea of them happening every roughly 20,000 years seems to be borne out by the record in the Antarctic ice cores. So the final uh, discussion point is, uh, where's the next one going to be? And so where would you go to find the next super eruption? Well, you probably wouldn't go to the places that have all had one recently. And this is Mount Mazama in Oregon. And that's what it uh, looked like before the eruption, quite a big volcano. And in 6,700 years, it had a magnitude 7.3. So it's a bit bigger than Tambora, something similar to Tambora. And it's produced the famous Crater Lake in Oregon, a very beautiful place to visit. So what we would probably do is not think that Crater Lake was such a likely place. We'd probably think we'd like to look for a volcano which looked more like this. What did the volcano look like before it had one of these really big eruptions? So where would you go? You'd go to, well, at least we could go to Turkey, which is not a place you'd probably think about volcanoes. 
but we've got recently a collaborative grant with, um, between the UK and the Turkish uh, Science uh, Foundation to study with Turkish colleagues the 10 active volcanoes of Turkey, uh, which includes Ararat, where supposedly Noah's Ark ended up. The one that we've been working on, we're going to work on all the Turkish volcanoes to assess their risk, and it's surprisingly... It turns out Turkey is a surprisingly high volcanic risk. And that's what we're working with in our Turkish colleagues. And during this project, we found this volcano. And I'll show you, perhaps just go back. It's this yellow dot here. It's one called Ajastagi. Uh, it lives near the city of Kayseri here. or It's uh, next door to the city of Kayseri. And this is a volcano that we think, from the geological record, looks very like what a volcano looks like before it has one of these massive eruptions. This is our team of Bristol University and a Geological Survey of Turkey colleagues on RGS. It's the, one, the highest peak, and the highest peaks in the Middle East goes up to about 3,700 metres. It's an absolutely spectacularly beautiful volcano and what we've been able to this is a, a photograph image of it from space uh, it's a huge volcano if you just look at the scale this is 20 kilometers it's a gigantic strata volcano which has got a history that suggests that it is brewing up for one of a very big eruption that red dot did line is from an old caldera from a past very, very large explosive eruption. And what we've been able to find is B, C, E, I and the summit are all really quite large eruptions which happened about seven or 8,000 years ago. And we believe that those, we, we interpret this as evidence that this volcano is far from uh, uh, extinct. Now, the thing about Turkey is that the volcanic risk is not going up because the volcano's becoming more active. It's going up because of population growth. And this is one of the towns which was a, literally a village of a couple of thousand people uh, in the 1950s, and it's now a town of 100,000 people. It's built on very young pyroclastic flow, these, all this mucky quarry stuff, are the pyroclastic flow deposits, which as a geologist I can recognise um, as pyroclastic flows. And we found that these are erupted uh, something like seven or 8,000 years ago. And the new city, or the town of Devali, is built on that. But even more concerning is the town of Kayseri. Um, I suspect if um, you asked where were the 10 biggest, fastest-growing cities in, on the earth at the moment, I suspect almost everybody would think China was on that list, and that's true. About f ten of the five of the ten fastest growing cities are Chinese cities. Three of them are in Turkey. And so Turkey is going through prodigious urbanization. And this is a, uh, a slope on the outer sides of that volcano. And the town of Kayseri, which was 50,000 people in 1950, is now 1.2 million people, and the growth is 5% per year. It's a dr very dramatic economic and social changes going on in Turkey. 
That's one of the biggest industrial estates in Turkey, which is also built on pyroclastic flows from very recent eruptions. And this is one of the uh, favoured areas for industrialization in Turkey because uh, this is an area which at, uh, supports President Erdogan very strongly. Um, so they seem to have had a lot of uh, benefits like gr uh, large industrial estates. And these are tower blocks, each with about probably uh, a couple of hundred people there that are going up on the plains. This flat ground is actually very young pyroclastic flow deposits. So they're building up basically on the same sort of stuff which got into Pompeii in AD 79. So we're seeing the volcanic risk going up very greatly, and we're working with our Turkish uh, colleagues to understand that and also to start talking to authorities and citizens around the volcanoes uh, about the, uh, basically what they would do were there to be a volcanic uh, eruption or how they should plan for that. So the risk is pretty, pretty high in this area. Okay, so that's... Um, I'll finish off with this nice watercolour um, of the Krakatoa in 1883, another very big eruption, one of the biggest of the 19th century, uh, and some of the beautiful sunsets that were created by all that pollution. Uh, and I'll uh, bring the lecture to an end now. Thank you.